We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We have walked together now through the whole of the Apostle Paul's second inspired letter to the church that was meeting in the city of Corinth. And along this journey, we've seen the context of the letter, which was some conflict between the Apostle and some who were in the church. What? Conflict in the church? Huh. I thought that was a new thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> turns out people were sinners back then too. The conflict uh, that was the context of the Apostle Paul's second inspired letter to the church meeting in the city of Corinth was threefold. There were, uh, number one, you'll remember these as we go through them, there were some who were offended at Paul for his lack of attention to their church. Now, we look at the entire New Testament, we see that this was unfounded, as Paul had committed perhaps more to the Corinthian church than almost any other church represented within the New Testament. I mean, um, he had certainly sacrificed a lot personally for them. But there were some who were offended for his lack of attention to them, their perception of being slighted. Oh, if you ever get that perception that you've been slighted, recognize the possibility, the potential for you to be wrong in that. Anyway, moving along. Second conflict we see as a context for this uh, second letter is that there were some who had been deceived by false apostles who had infiltrated the church already in the first century, seeking to set up a centralized church in which they had a lot of power. Eventually this was successful in the city of Rome, but um, the, 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 uh, that deception and that uh, uh, mystery of iniquity, as the Apostle Paul calls it, had already begun to work. And um, they, these false apostles had personally attacked the rightful Apostle Paul. Well, I mean, of course, they're going to attack the legitimate authority structure of the church. And there were some, uh, in, in a third conflict, uh, that is the context for this letter, is that there were some who were involved in sin. And uh, raise your hand if you're involved in sin. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, I should not have said that. But we know you were kidding, Elsie. So the... <laughs> I didn't want to be the only one that had seen that hand, so, you know. <laughs> All right, so the, there were some, though, in the church that were involved in sin, and, and they had been rebuked by Paul in a previous letter. And these had largely repented, and they were reportedly on the right path. But, well, let me ask you this. How many of you have um, sinned, got right with God, and then fallen back into the same sin? All right, there's, yeah, we're all honest about that, right? Um, and so th- th- that's still a context, all right? It's, um, it's for- forgiven and forgotten by God. Um, unfortunately, uh, not always forgotten by ourselves, right? Um, and so Paul sees it as a legitimate context. And so we've seen these three conflicts 
uh, surface repeatedly in our text within this letter and Paul's address of these conflicts uh, has served as the framework for some of the most powerful truths that are in this letter. One of the great things about reading the Bible is you get to listen to other people get corrected for their problems. And you go, oh, well, I, I won't do that, right? <laughs> and so that's real a helpful part of Scripture. And to some extent, we see that um, Paul's address of these conflicts is how the letter ends. And uh, it, you know, it's been quite a journey through Paul's second inspired letter to the church meeting in the city of Corinth. We started this journey on January the 1st. Remember that? January the 1st. It was the first day of the year. Um, and we jumped forward to the fifth chapter in which we saw what I believe to be the thematic chapter of the, of the letter. And it boiled down Paul's entire motivation for living and serving the Lord. And it was, what was his motivation? It was the love of Christ. You see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. In which he says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. That means it grabs a hold of us and it pulls us along. It encircles us and it keeps us going the right direction. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. The fact that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is universally available to all, makes the implication that all need it. The Apostle Paul says. Verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 5, he says, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. Turns out, when you receive the Holy Spirit inside of you, when you are born into God's family, when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, things are supposed to be different, right? You're not supposed to live for yourself anymore. You say, well, wait a minute. What about my dreams? What about my ambitions? All gone. Throw them away. Something better is on the table. And it's God's dreams, God's ambitions, God's mission for your life. And trust me, you're trading up. All right? So he says, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. All right. I did not intend to re-preach the January 1st sermon. But this, this set the theme for our whole study and challenged us as to the authenticity of our faith and of our, the authenticity of our service for uh, the king. And today... We're going to end our journey with one last challenge and similar to how we started. Let's read the last chapter of this letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll start in verse 1 and read through the end of the chapter, and we'll see how the Holy Spirit challenges us therefrom. 2 Corinthians 13, this is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you. As if I were present the second time, and being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned, and to all other, 
that if I come again, I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Verse 5, this is a, a pivotal verse in the last chapter here. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and ye are strong. And this also we wish, even your perfection. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with an holy kiss. All the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage that does so powerfully challenge us in regards to proving our faith. We just ask you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in each of our hearts, challenge us to this end, motivate us, and and teach us how we might obey your word. God, if there's someone here today that hasn't yet come to that place in their life where they recognize Jesus Christ to be the only way they can have a relationship with you, I just pray that they would... uh, that they would give up everything and embrace Christ as their Savior. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. So this is a, there's a theme here that stands out in the passage that we've read. And maybe you noticed it. It's the idea of proving, right? It's the idea of proving. I mean, follow along with me through the passage again as we just quickly, very quickly review it. In the first four Verses we see the subject of the of the proving of Paul's apostleship, which is a continuance of the theme of the previous chapter to some extent. Um, and 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 do this, get an eyeball on that text. All right, as we as I quickly review through it, it makes me um, feel better that you're reading along in the Bible. Um, his words are better than mine. So it start it starts in verse one, in which Paul promises to come to them. Right? And he expresses there his intention to call to account those who are still in sin after his former rebuke. And if they are still in sin, he's going to exercise his authority as an apostle to discipline them. Um, verse 2 reiterates the same sentiment. And it emphasizes the authority of Paul's letters as well, and it assures the reader that mercy is not going to be on the menu 
if there's no repentance on the part of the persistent sinner. The Apostle Paul says, look, if I come and I find those that I have rebuked for their sin who have supposedly gotten their lives straightened out back in the same mud hole, it is not going to go well for them. Sounds almost parental, doesn't it? (laughs) Next in verse 3, we see Paul acknowledging their demand for proof of his apostleship. I mean, the false apostle that had crept into the Corinthian church had claimed Paul to be false himself. And some within the Corinthian church then demanded Paul prove that he had authority to rebuke them at all. That's not uncommon. People don't like being rebuked, and when you are rebuked, what's the first thing on your mind? Who do you think you are? Right? (laughs) They're literally asking Paul, who do you think you are? Prove that. Oh. Okay. So Paul had... (laughs) So Paul had to satisfy their demands and and prove that he spake with the authority of Christ because that's the unique privilege of the power, uh, the the privilege and the power of the twelve. All right? This isn't something that, uh, there's no such thing as apostolic succession. All right? There was only twelve of those apostles. Only they had this authority. What came, what came, quick pop quiz, What came to replace the apostles in authority and power and represent the very words of Christ? The Word of God, right? Okay, and this is how the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And um, uh, so that's, that's important to recognize. Okay, so... That was a rabbit trail. One of the arguments against Paul was his uh, perceived weakness and hesitancy to exercise authority and to wield power. They didn't feel like he acted like someone that was important. You know, he was kind of a ugly little guy. I mean, he, he talked about that himself. He was. He was kind of an ugly little guy, talked funny, couldn't see real well, wore these great big glasses. No, he didn't. But he wished he did, you know. <laughs> Couldn't see real well. And, uh, and, and sometimes he is kind of ornery, you know. So they, they, uh, they saw some of this um, lack of powerful persona as weakness. Um, I find it interesting then in verse 4 that Paul uses the example of Christ as his defense. Jesus chose the perception of weakness, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I mean, this was thrown into his teeth. They said, if you be the Son of God, what? Come down from that cross. Make this right. Could Jesus have done this? The Bible is very clear on this. He had legions of angels at his beck and call. And he chose weakness. He says, no, I, I will be perceived as weak now. Was Jesus ever weak? <laughs> no. But he chose the path of weakness. The path of weakness that Jesus chose had a greater purpose 
And three days and three nights later, that greater purpose was revealed. Paul associates himself with the perceived weakness of Jesus. You can see it right there in verse 4. He says, um, for, we are, we are also, for we also are weak in him. But we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. So Paul is associating himself with the perceived weakness of Jesus, and he thereby implies the same association with Christ's power in the last part of verse 4. So it, it is, after all, this context of proving his own position as an apostle that Paul turns the issue around in verse 5 and seeks proof of the reader's faith. You see that? He says... Um, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. So so you've asked me to prove myself. I've proved myself by holding myself up to the example of Christ. The one thing you point out that didn't look all that powerful to you, where it seemed to you I was weak and didn't have the persona of authority. Well, neither did Christ on the cross. Now how about you? (laughs) He says, why don't you prove yourself? Prove that you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Examine your heart. Are you truly a child of God? And this is where we find our imperative for the day. If, if you're going to write down notes, here's the first important thing to write down. Every professing Christian must prove his faith. Every professing Christian must prove his faith. You see this imperative mood right there in verse 5 where he says, examine yourselves. That's a, that's a command. The imperative mood is the mood in which you give a command. He says, he says, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. There's an option then to examine yourself and find out, oh, Turns out I've got all the trappings of Christianity and am no Christian. Turns out I have all the associations of the faith, but am not in it. Prove your own selves, he says. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? This sets the theme for the chapter as Paul's desire for them is that they be found worthy. That their examination find authenticity. Now some ministers might be motivated by how their followers make them look. Right? That's a real issue. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of reason why ministers kind of drift away from this and start making their own lists of things. (laughs) So that everyone, by the way, you all need to look like this. You should probably wear this. Here's an example. It looks like this. right? And and there's a temptation for a, a spiritual leader to make clones. Because I gotta tell you what, if I got a peop if I got a if I have a following that looks like me, besides the fact that the world is not necessarily a better place, um, <laughs> I'm pretty proud of myself, though. Look at my impact. 
made a bunch of little Joshes. <laughs> the world can only handle so many of those. Here's the thing. The Apostle Paul recognizes that this may be the suspicion. That he's trying to make followers um, so that he... So that he might look good. The faithfulness and the holiness of followers, they do reflect upon the spiritual leader. And so Paul specifically denies this personal motivation in verse 7. Just look at verse 7 where he says, Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not, not, he says, not that we should appear approved. He says, understand, I'm not telling you that you need to live a holy life so that I look good. I'm not telling you that you need to leave the sin so that I look good, so that I might be approved. He only desires their improvement. He says, but that you should do that which is honest. Though we be as reprobates. It's interesting uh, how Paul frames this. He says, I want, I want you to do no evil. I want you to be on the right path, doing the right thing, obeying the Holy Spirit, following the Word of God, um, having victory over sin in your life. I want you doing the right thing. And, and understand, it's not so that I look good. As a matter of fact, I want you... To live genuine, authentic, honest lives before Christ, even if I turn out to be a reprobate. Think about that. Well, you know what Paul just brought up? A very real uh, situation in Christianity, and that is that people tend to have faith that is dependent on another human. What if? What if? Your spiritual leader falls into sin. What happens to your faith? I mean, it's it, it it's it's devastating. All right, it it would be an emotional thing, hopefully, but it should not destroy your faith. Paul says you should be able to stand on your relationship with God without me, even if I turn out to be a reprobate. Now, the Apostle Paul assures, don't worry, I'm not, okay? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a reprobate. Um, and let me assure you, I, I'm not, okay? But you should have the strength in your spiritual relationship with God so that you can live honestly. Even if those that you look up to in humanity, in the body of Christ, or supposedly therein, turn out to be false. Because here's the reality. There's false people out there. And I hate to see, you know, I hate to see one spiritual leader fall. You know, you hate to see someone fall. But what I hate even worse is to see the hundreds that fall after him. You know what Paul is saying? I, I do not intend to have you as that kind of a follower. I want you to stand on your own. 
I want you to have a relationship with God that works even if I turn out to be an idiot. That's the modern way of saying reprobate. It's not really, actually. It doesn't mean idiot at all. <laughs> it means unapproved, all right? And the Apostle Paul turned out to be approved by God, obviously. Um, anyway, another rabbit trail. Where was I? So, um, see at the... Uh, so he desires their improvement. He's not driven by how they make him appear. So the reader should look for some motivation as to why we must prove our faith. In other words, Paul says, don't do this for me. And he gives them reasons why they should do this, why they should prove their faith, why they should examine themselves. And that's the reasons we should be looking for. You should not seek to prove your faith just for your spiritual leader. Why must then every professing Christian examine himself or herself and prove their faith? We find the answer to this mostly summarized in Paul's farewell verse, verse 11. He says, finally, brethren, farewell. That's why I call it the farewell verse. Be perfect. (laughs) Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. See at the end here, the implication of God's love and peace. You know, this is, this is not with someone whose faith is counterfeit. Rather, they have an eternal future without God's love and peace. Right? So, there's eternal consequences to having a counterfeit faith. Notice also the reference to the perfection and uh, to perfection and to good comfort. You see that also in verse 11? This wholeness, because when you see the word perfection in your old King James Bible, understand this, what it means is wholeness. It means completeness. And and that's the meaning of perfection is is wholeness. And, And it comes from knowing that your eternal destination is wholly secure and that you are indeed a child of God. There is wholeness in assurance. Finally, we see the reference to being of one mind and at peace with each other. And this is the result of proven faith. What binds us together is the authenticity of our faith. If we're faking it, uh, or if we're not truly born into the family of God, then there's going to be some natural obstacles to our unification with each other. But no body of people is more unified than a body of blood-washed saints whose faith has been proven and found to be authentic. So let's see these three motivations again in the rest of the passage. Why must we examine ourselves and prove our faith? And I'd like to point out how in verse 5, the first motivation that we have is because of the eternal consequences. Because of the eternal consequences. The word used here for those who find themselves lost in their examination of their salvation is reprobate. Right? If you examine your faith and you find yourself, oh, wow, you know what? I've examined my faith. Looks to me like I thought that I was 
going to be working my way into heaven. I thought G- Jesus like put down a down payment and then I pay the rest of it or something. You know what you've just discovered? That you have an inauthentic faith. You have a faith that is not, not a saving faith. You are trusting in your good works, either present or eventual. So, that, that, there's some eternal consequences to that. And the word used is reprobate. And the word is translated from the Greek word um, adakimos. Eh? Don't I sound smart? So, which means unapproved. All right? It's, it's perfectly translated into reprobate because that's the implication of this English word. It means unapproved. You imagine standing before God unapproved? That's not a good, not a good feeling, is it? Seeing how it is used in this passage, we do not understand it to mean that they are without hope, that they are that they cannot be saved, only that they don't have the qualities of the saved. They stand before God dressed in their own righteousness, even to some little extent. They stand dressed in their own righteousness, and God doesn't allow people in his presence dressed in filthy rags. You must be dressed in the righteousness of his son. So, if the sorting out of souls were to take place, these would be rejected. They're not dressed in the righteousness of Christ. There are so many who attend church and observe religious ritual and wear the label of Christian. But there's quite a few less who will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. There are eternal consequences to being found counterfeit. And and I don't mean to cast doubt on the salvation of those who have come to Christ at the behest of his drawing and have trusted in him as their Savior. I do not mean to inject insecurity into your concept of secured eternity. I only mean to emphasize that being sure is important because of the eternal consequences of being counterfeit. We must examine ourselves and prove our faith because of the eternal consequences. You've got to get this right. There's more positive reasons as well as to why we should prove our faith And the second one that we see is because of the wholeness of assurance. If you look at verse 9, he says, For we are glad, um, for we are glad when we are weak and ye are strong, and this also we wish even your perfection. The word perfection is here used again, and and it's Paul's goal for the church in Corinth that they be perfect. That they be whole, not fractured. We know this word used in scripture is not implying that once you're saved, you're never going to make a mistake again. Don't you wish that were the case, right? But, uh, and, and it doesn't mean that you're going to live flawlessly. What it does mean is this, that you are whole. There's no one so fractured as a person whose desire is eternal bliss, but is unsure of their qualification. You know that feeling. 
of wanting to spend eternity in heaven, looking forward to it, and not sure you're going to make it. That's a terrible feeling. That's not wholeness. There's wholeness in the concept of assurance. It's enough to drive a person over the edge of sanity. To be unsure of their salvation, of their qualifications for entering heaven. To live for a standard that's unreachable. All the while trying to convince yourself of its near proximity is the opposite of wholeness. If your faith is not authentic, if you are, if you are to find your trust in something other than holy in Jesus Christ for your salvation and for its maintenance, then you are less than whole. You are broken. And God offers wholeness in the concept of assurance. You are broken and wounded and in need of healing. And the Christian who is sure of his or her faith will tell you that there is healing and wholeness to be found in the eternal security of the salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ. This alone is reason enough to examine our faith and prove ourselves to be children of God so that we might relish the wholeness of assurance. Now, if that's not something with which you are... Uh, uh, familiar. I don't, I don't know how to um, to be sure of my salvation. Beloved, you need to figure that out today. You need to prove your salvation. Hold it up to the pages of Scripture and say, am I trusting in any way in anything but Jesus Christ and what He's done on the cross for my entire salvation? Once you've examined yourself and proven your salvation, there is a wholeness in assurance. The last motivation that I can see is in verse 11. And that is because of the unity of proven faith. The unity of proven faith. Um, verse 11 says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. See this reference to being of one mind? I mean, isn't that a dream to which so many in the world aspire? I mean, they make songs about it. They stand barefoot in the grass and wave their hands in the air and talk about it, sing about it. Um, <laughs> unity is almost a, a marketing term in our world nowadays, isn't it? But it's, it's rarely realized. And quite frankly, I'll even posit this. It, it is never truly realized outside the body of Christ. You know why that is? You know why unity is so elusive? Even though politicians promise, I'm going to bring unity. What they mean is, I'm going to make it so hard for everyone that disagrees with me to say anything. <laughs> it's going to look like we're unified. <laughs> and quite frankly, that, that comes from both sides of the political spectrum, doesn't it? <laughs> no, that, that's not unity. Unity comes from having one mind. Why can it never be found um, in secular or, for that matter, interfaith gatherings? 
things because the people all have minds of their own. That's why. They have no powerful unifying factor like the body of Christ has. The Bible says that we have the mind of Christ. That means that He, in the form of the Holy Spirit, is inside of us thinking. The love of the Holy Spirit is no is not just some impersonal force from God. He is, he is a sentient being thinking inside of our bodies. That's a pretty awesome thought. I mean, for some of us, that's the only real thought going on inside of our bodies, right? <laughs> and the Bible says that we have the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit is thinking in us. So then, why are we not unified? We have to surrender our lives to his thinking. And then we will know the unity of being of one mind, as Paul intimates here. This unity is only possible if we are all genuine in our faith. This is, this is a good reason to examine ourselves and be sure of our faith. To look inside and say, Am I truly a child of God? Or do I just associate with children of God? Have I been born into God's family? Or am I just regular company? It's something to think about. You want unity? That's one of the benefits. The unity of proven faith. Then, then look inside. Compare your salvation with what the Bible describes as what God offers for an eternal relationship with Him. Prove your faith. Examine yourself and prove your salvation. A proven faith enjoys unity with others of the same authentic spirit. So we have seen the motivations that the Holy Spirit gives us in the text for why we must prove our faith. And this is where I would typically transition from the motivational half of the sermon to the practical half. All right? The motivational half, we ask the question, well, we see the command of Scripture. Prove your faith. Examine yourselves. Prove your faith. And so we ask the question, why? Why must I do this? Why is this so important? We see these motivational reasons in our text. And then once we're motivated to do this, we, I mean, the, the, the natural question is, okay, yeah, I need to do that. I, I don't want to suffer the eternal consequences of not being in the faith, right? I, I want the wholeness of assurance. I'm tired of not knowing if I'm saved. And... Because of the unity of proven faith. You say, yeah, I want to be a part of that body that's all thinking with the mind of Christ. I want unity. So this is the half of the sermon where I would uh, step into the practical application. But as it turns out, it is uh, time for the sermon to end. (laughs) So here's the thing. If in this first half of the sermon you say, you know what, I'm not sure... 
I'm not sure about my faith. I've done a little examination um, just from what you've said, and I haven't seen all the practical ways that the Bible wants me to do that, but I'm beginning to question my salvation. Let me ask you this, or let me assure you of this. You can get that settled today. Next week, we're going to go through four very practical steps right from this passage that show you how you can examine your faith and prove your salvation. And and we'll go through that next week at length. But if you're wondering about your salvation now, tell you what, I would love to show you from my Bible how you can be absolutely 100% certain without a shadow of a doubt that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven. The Bible gives us that assurance. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation entitled, I Surrender All. And so, if you'd like to learn more about that, come sit in the front uh, row while we sing this first stanza, and I'd be glad to show you from my Bible how you can receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Um, Go ahead and stand. It's number 308 in your hymn books. I surrender all.